I'm Mike Leonard, a Canadian living in Tokyo, and this is The Candid Frame. Louis Pasteur said that chance favors only the prepared mind. He was speaking about those moments of inspiration that allow a scientist to make a leap of thought and action that's contrary to not only accepted norms, but even one's own instincts. It's no less so for photographers, who sometimes find opportunities under the most unusual of circumstances. Mark DePala has experienced moments like that during his career as a photographer. Before he was photographing major fashion campaigns and directing commercials, he was a young man looking to market himself as a headshot photographer. So one day, he went to the offices of a local trade publication to place an ad, when a woman behind the desk motioned for him to come into her office and asked him a question. So I finished my business at the, with the receptionist, and, and she, she waves me into her office. And, and uh, I again looked behind me to see whether she was actually talking to me, and I go in the room, and she says, uh, you good? And again, I look behind me, excuse me, says, are you good? I said, well, not sure exactly what you're talking about, but yeah, I'm good. I'll, I'll say good. Yeah, you know, she says, so you're good. I go, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, you're really good. I'm really good. She said, great. You have a studio? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, which uh, was not entirely true. And she says, well, I've got an assignment for you. You're good. I go, I'm, I'm good. She says, uh, you know Henry Fonda? I was, uh, yeah, of course I know Henry Fonda. <laughs> you know, she says, well, I need a cover of the ma- my magazine. Uh, can you photograph Henry Fonda at your studio? I said, absolutely. And that was my first assignment. His success isn't just the result of recognizing an opportunity and running with it. It's also been about Mark staying true to himself. Instead of being fixated on ever-increasing resolution, sharpness, and photoshopping, Mark uses the lack of sharp focus and the absence of retouching to emphasize the genuine emotion of the subject in the moment. It's a style that's attracted many fans and clients, a few of which he's had to turn away. This concern, who uh, they are a huge global brand came up to me and said, Oh, you know, Mark, we love your work and, you know, just fantastic. And we'd like for you to, you know, work with us. And, and we were just wondering if, you know, you could, you know, do a few more, you know, in focus and, Oh, oh, excuse me. I said, no, that's just what you, if you like my work, what you've seen is what, what I do. And, and so, no, I, I, I can't really do that. Oh, excuse me. So you're saying that you can't shoot, a few more in focus. I said, no, no, I'm not saying that at all. I can shoot them all in focus. I said, that's not my approach because it's not as natural as what you've maybe responded to. And we're now having this conversation. Well, you know, we have 8,000, you know, stores worldwide. I said, no, no, I know, I know who you are. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And uh, so, and again, they were like, so you're saying, so you, you, you can't, or you won't do that. I said, yeah, no, exactly. I, I just have my way of doing it, and and um, but you know, thank you so much. I'm flattered, and it's it's wonderful. So they, they were a bit shocked. We'll talk to Mark about how walking in the footsteps of his father, also a photographer, inspired his career, and how being mugged for his camera at 12 years old actually transformed his photography. This is Ibadian X, and welcome back to the Candid Frame. 
Where, you, where in New York do you live? I live uh, in an area called Upper West Side. Uh, so 66th and uh, right on the Hudson, right on okay. the, called Riverside Boulevard. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, my family there, I was born there, but we, we moved here when I was about okay. probably about two years old. But I still have family in the Heights. My sister-in-law lives in the Bronx. Okay. And my, my parents had a place on 72nd and Broadway. Yeah. And yeah. I tell my mom that if... Needle Park. Yeah. I say, well, if, you're still, if we were still living there, we'd be rich. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I think you're rich in many ways. Yeah. That was a rough, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in New York as well. And boy, oh boy, that was a rough area. Like, it just sort of just didn't go over there. And I, I lived a few years back at 73rd and Broadway. Okay. Uh, so I know the area well, but also knew it when I was a kid. <laughs> like, you know, you just didn't go basically west of, uh, you know, Central Park West. It got dicey. Yeah. You, but you were born here in L.A.? I was born in L.A., yes. Okay. I was born in Santa Monica, yeah. And then uh, uh, my when father... It was a, when it was a small, middle-class community. Yeah, yeah. It, Not what that, it is now. If that, yeah. I don't know. Maybe lower middle class. Of, to, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> things have changed. <laughs> oh, yeah. There were just you know, very small, modest homes down there when I would visit friends down there. Now yeah. everything's been... Um, Imaginized. Yeah. What they call them, big mansions. Big mansions, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So your your dad was a photographer, and your mom was a model. That's right. Yeah. Came up that way. Yeah, I was uh, born at uh, St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. Okay, and taken home to a photo studio. I, uh, literally, in my earliest uh, recollections are of you know sort of crawling around the floor with these gigantic people around me and going through uh, books and periodicals of the time. So I was like literally born into photography. It was, and the studio was on Co- uh, Coenga, right by the freeway there. Oh, in by Hollywood. The yeah. Oh, uh, no, oh, no, no, by, by the, the, whatever, the, the 101 or whatever yeah, the 101. That is. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, right in the heart of Hollywood. Right in the heart of Hollywood. And, and it was three, three floors and you know, studio and a full lab. And my aunt ran the, the lab and processed the film for my dad. He had a, you know, bustling. Uh, it was quite a fine photographer, you know, uh, shot a lot of amazing things. Yeah, so that was like you know, my earliest. Very tall people was uh, my <laughs> earliest recollection. So how did your dad get into photography? He uh, actually went to school to study painting in Laguna Beach. He was uh, grew up in Cleveland, suburb of Cleveland called Beachwood. He was sort of falsified, but he, he joined the Marines just prior to his legal ability to do so. And so, okay. and he uh, was actually on the SS Indianapolis, and which was sunk. And uh, he was 18 hours, as I understand it, in the, you know, the warm waters of the South Pacific and watched uh, many, many of his, you know, uh, friends and, and comrades uh, die shark attack and barracuda and stuff (laughs) sort of a great story about that that uh they uh, had uh, the the government the the military had you know pronounced him dead along with many many people on that boat and they came to deliver this uh, information to my family my family's home my grandmother and so there's you know two guys in uniforms we have some news can you please sit down and she's like oh no i don't want to sit down uh, you know can i get you guys some coffee and and they were like no ma'am this is you know official business said, oh well i'll make you coffee and they're like uh, well you know we can't really do that but come have a seat uh, which they eventually did because she was sort of unrelenting and they said uh, well we've got some bad news we've you know your son has been 
been lost in in in, in the war. Really, you know, we regret to tell you this, and we you know we offer counseling. We can get in touch. She goes, oh no, no, he's not dead. Oh, oh ma'am, yeah, uh, people often react this way, but uh, you know, your son unfortunately has passed away, and. And she said, no, if my son were dead, I would know it. You know, respectfully, thank you for coming, but my son is not dead. Here's your coffee, you know, type thing. And of course, you know, he showed up. Wow. <laughs> he survived. So, sort of a crazy story. But uh, did, did your dad ever talk about those details or did you kind nope. of find that from other family members? No, it was from, he told me the story eventually, but I was probably in, you know, my 20s at that time. You know, my, my dad was uh, the most tasteful person who I still have ever met. Mild-mannered. I never heard him raise his voice. And uh, he was sort of, you know, the opposite of what you would think of someone surviving, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then he, t- he sat my sister and I down one time we were visiting and he told us the story <laughs> and he never spoke about it again and, and no details. Of course, you know, the details from, you know, historical recollections and, and chronicling of that event. But that must have really just surprised the hell out of you to hear that from a man you had known all your life. And- yes. Yes. I don't think it was, you know, about, uh, I mean, I don't have the impression that it was about, you know, something post-traumatic that he couldn't talk about. Or, I think it was more for him relevancy. Like, it, it, it just, you know, it wasn't relevant. Yeah, I mean. Any longer, but. I have the same issue with my own parents because they grew up in a dictatorship. And broaching that as a point of conversation is just like, well, why do you want to talk about that sort of sort of thing? There isn't really much of a reason to talk about it than why talk about it, especially when the memories are, are so painful. Yeah. I think it's our way of uh, dealing with things. You know, we tend to protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from things that are, you know, troubling or challenging. Yeah. So was it through your dad's work as a, as a photographer that he, he met your mother? Yes. Yeah. I don't know much about the details of that actual <laughs> meeting, but yes, uh, they met yeah, professionally and then, of course, went from there. And my mother went on to being a, a producer, one of the first women-owned production companies in L.A. Yeah, long, long history of uh, production. My father went on to, sort of quickly went into uh, directing commercials, television commercials, and I managed to do the exact same thing. So I started as a fashion beauty photographer and went to, into, I got a, I was living in Milan, uh, Italy, photographing fashion and got a call to do a commercial out in California. So I flew back for that and it was very successful and sort of immediately launched a uh, 20 year career of directing commercials. Some people, when don't necessarily follow in the footsteps of their parent in terms of what they do, yeah. either because they just they want to distance themselves as much as possible. I thought about that, by the way. <laughs> okay, so before you made the choice to become a photographer, what were you sort of toying with? I was, you know, fascinated and fanatic about uh, literature, uh, particularly English literature, with the intent of becoming an attorney. So uh, that was my pursuit actually had come out to California from New York to study law, in particular international law. There was a great professor at USC at that time named Carl Crystal, and he was on the either the International Court of Justice or the World Court of Justice at that time. I can't remember which. I found that uh, the people in the, the, the cinema studies at USC were having a lot more fun than I was. <laughs> and uh, I, I switched majors, so to speak, or switched lives. And so... Yeah, went into the film business. Did you study in New York or did you study out here? 
Um, in which which end of when you started getting into photography, you, did you do any studying there? Or oh no, I, I I I had photo, started photographing when I was ten years old and processing my own film, you know, black and white and color. So it wasn't really. I mean, respectfully, the proximity of art center here, the esteemed art center. I, I did no formal training for photography or film. So because well, I learned it already from my right. father, I you know, so, yeah, early and complete immersion. Yeah, so. But uh, one of your first assignments was to a portrait of Henry Fonda. That was my, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So there's an interesting story about how that came about. Why don't you tell us that? There is, yeah. I um, uh, was at SE, uh, like I said, studying international law, and, and uh, my sister was an aspiring actress, and she had had some headshots taken uh, of her, and she wanted to get my opinion, uh, of course. And it was two rolls of film, you know, two proof sheets, uh, black and white, of course. And she said, you know, what do you, what do you think of these? And I, I said, uh, they're terrible. <laughs> what, how did this come about? She goes, oh, this is the best headshot photographer in L.A. I said, oh, really? And she said, yeah, yeah, so-and-so is the best, you know, headshot photographer. I said, how much do you pay for these? And, you know, this was in the day. She said it was $200. I said, $200? It's like, I, I should be doing that. And I went to this publication, a trade publication, which is no longer existent, to put a little one column inch ad in there, you know, you know, photography by Mark or Mark, you know, in my telephone number. And I thought, well, I can do that much better than the, this gal who's supposedly the best at this. So I went over to this office on Hollywood Boulevard in a building there. I walked in, there was a reception desk, and then there was a, a door just to the camera left of that with this diminutive woman with papers and books all over her desk, and you can barely see her uh, through this sort of canyon of, of papers and things. So I'm giving the information to the receptionist, and, and this woman keeps looking at me and sort of shuffling so she can get a better view. You probably could hear the audio changes there as I <laughs> make the movement, and and I'm lo keep looking behind me and th and and thinking like she's got to be you know looking at someone behind me. There's no one there, and you know, and then uh, so I finish my business at the with the receptionist, and and she she waves me into her office. And, I again looked behind me to see whether she was actually talking to me, and I go in the room, and she says, uh, "You good?" And again, I look behind me. Excuse me. She says, "Are you good?" I said, well, uh, not sure exactly what you're talking about, but um, yeah, I'm good. Uh, I'll, I'll say good. Yeah, you know, she says, so you're good. I go, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, you're really good. I'm really good. And she said, great. You have a studio? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, which uh, was not entirely true. And she says, well, I've got an assignment for you. You're good. I go, I'm, I'm good. She says, uh, you know Henry Fonda? I was, uh, yeah, of course I know Henry Fonda. <laughs> you know, she said, well, I need a cover of the, my magazine. Uh, can you photograph Henry Fonda at your studio? I said, absolutely. And that was my first assignment. And I say this because I tell the story often because it's interesting. Everyone's route or, you know, traveling in this world and in this business is unique. And, you know, the, the blessing of being able to, you know, photograph an Academy Award winning actor for a cover of a magazine without showing any work. Uh, just on your I was word. about to say, yeah. Yeah, so it's a, uh, and I always ask people when I'm doing my public speaking, like, has anybody ever had this experience? And I, I said, okay, there's no hands here. 
And I say that, well, that's how unique we are. We all uh, have a, a different and unique route, you know. And so I, I, I did this cover. And uh, before you go into the cover, you got to tell me about the sitting with Henry Fonda because here you are, this, no real experience, much less with a, with a celebrity. And Henry Fonda, admired as he is as an actor, wasn't always the most amenable person. He was charming. Well, was he? And wonderful. Yeah. And uh, thank you for asking me for that story because it's a good one. So we were, you know, photographing. Of course, we had all the, the you know, attendees in terms of hair, makeup, and styling, and grooming, and all these things, and his people, you know, PR management. And during that session, it was wonderful working with him. It was so easy. I, I wasn't, you know, sort of intimidated by these people, let's say, because I, I think I grew up in an environment where there's some, you know, people like that who were family friends. Uh, so it, it, I don't think I was, into, you know, oh, there's Henry Vonda, you know, although respect respected him and uh, admired him, but I don't think it really sort of altered my way of doing business. But, you know, so I had to, you know, sort of play the game and there I was. And so... That went really well, but and, most, and how most, old were you? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I'm I'm not very good with time, but it was in, maybe I think twenty two, wow, or twenty four, or uh, somewhere around there. Well, I think of most of the twenty two year old, twenty two yeah. or twenty one year old people I know. Uh, I could imagine them being incredibly intimidated by by that. But like you said, that experience that you had with your with your dad probably put you relatively at ease. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's the way. And, and I grew up in New York, and uh, you know, you know, just sort of the people who are you know, it's a pretty you know fast paced and and uh, often uh, filled a city filled with successful people, and uh, you know, so it was around it a bit. One interesting thing that happened there was that uh, at that time during that session was he got a phone call from his management and he he says you know very politely excuse me you know mark but I, I need to take this call absolutely you know mr fonda please and he gets on the phone and it's uh Janie, it's so good to hear from you it's lovely oh yeah i'm i'm doing a little shoot here in hollywood yeah please no go ahead uh-huh uh -huh. yes that oh, Janie. Whatever you would want me to do, I will do, of course. No, tell them that I will do it. And that was his commitment to the film On Golden Pond, which he uh, starred in with his daughter, oh, wow. Jane. I think that this session, this photo session, was the last formal session with uh, Mr. Fonda. If I remember correctly, that may not be entirely accurate, but I remember it being the last formal session. I'm sure there were excuse me, some, uh, you know, sessions associated with that film, publicity stuff or, you know, unit still stuff on the, on the film. But, uh, yeah, so that was like, that was my foray into, uh, yeah. And were you <laughs> able, and were you able to relatively leverage that almost immediately or did it take some time after that to start getting a little more work? It's a bit of a blur. Um, I, I don't think that I was able to, you know, directly leverage that specifically, but things happened fairly quickly at that time, and so I, I'm sure it had, you know, some sort of effect. I was, you know, I did, a, you know, a fair amount of, you know, celebrity, you know, portraiture stuff in addition to the fashion work. So, but I don't know about like connecting the dots. I yeah. don't know, you know, exactly, but. Uh, Early on, you, you, I've heard you talk about sort of developing a, a more intimate style. You talk about when you were in New York, I think around Bethesda Fountain or something like that, uh, making photographs with a 
telephoto lens and then you got mugged and that sort of changed things. It did. <laughs> so tell In us a lot about of ways. Yeah. yeah. Without using the language that I used at that time, so it's maybe a family-friendly, you know, audience. But yeah, I used to go around uh, Bethesda Fountain uh, in the day, and uh, you know, ten, twelve years old, and and take uh, you know, sort of just chronicle the sort of youth culture of the time, and uh, it was just it was beautiful. And I, my uh, stepfather had uh, given me a uh, brought back a, a, a Nikon and a couple lenses, including a two hundred millimeter lens, and I would go out to the park thinking I'm this pro photographer and uh, take pictures of the sort of hippie culture and it was great fun until uh, one day I was uh, that started to rain and everybody scattered myself included and on my way home is an area of Central Park called the Ramble you know dangerous very dangerous area of the park this guy you know stepped in front of me and said uh, I'm a policeman and uh, I, I used uh, language that was unbecoming of a 12 year old and, and rather foolish and he pulled out a gun put the gun to my head and said, get in the bushes and take off your shoes. And this is where I'm starting to get really nervous. And he proceeded to steal my cameras and, uh, you know, dejected. And, uh, you know, he had three other people with him that were to follow me home. And if I ever told anybody about this, that he would come to my house and kill me. And I said, uh, okay. So I didn't have my Nikon anymore. And so now, as a 12-year-old, I, you know, I thought myself this you know, pro photographer, but I didn't have a camera. So I figured out, well, i got to put some money together. And, because my, fa- my stepfather was like, well, you've lost the camera that I gave you. You're not getting another camera. You can do extra chores or what, you know, whatever, and, which I did. Ended up buying a Leica M3. And my father had always shot Leica, so I was you know, f- aware and familiar with them. But the, the Nikon was the pro thing at that time, you know, the pro camera. So I ended up getting an M3 with a little collapsible Summicron and went back to the park, you know, to be, you know, my pro photographer boy, you know. I realized quickly that uh, instead of being sort of a passive observer through a 200 millimeter lens, you know, magnifying the distance by four times of normal vision or a 50 millimeter lens, I, I thought I, in order to get the same image, I had to be much closer. I had to then become an active participant, which so put me right in the crowd. And then I became photo boy. And the people who are photographing are like patting me on my head and take a picture of me, photo boy. You know, how's it going, photo boy? And of course, you know, for a 12 year old boy at a you know, critical time of development, you know, the, now interacting with these people who are subjects at a distance. So that really largely, you know, you know, put postured me in, into who I am today, which is to have a smaller, unobtrusive, you know, sort of approach to documenting and my work, although it, I have not been a documentary photographer, I have a, a documentary approach. Sort of on that note, you know, fast forward quite a bit. I was in China uh, recently and uh, doing the first, actually, two, uh, Patrick Zachman, a Magnum guy, and I gave the first two workshops in China a couple of years ago. At the end, there was this award, you know, we give out these certificates and, you know, there was both of our sort of camps were at this dinner. And this guy from Patrick's side who was doing a street thing because he's a street photographer, you know, photojournalist this guy comes up to me and says oh you know i heard great things about your workshop i'm going to take your workshop you know next time i i did the street thing with patrick i said no yeah no i'm aware and i said i also shoot street and he looked at me like very confused i said it just i my street is just a different street but 
I'm a, a, a documentary photographer. I'm, I'm a journalist of my world. And that's always been my approach to photography is to put people in a position where, number one, they can be themselves in a safe and non-judged you know, condition and let them be themselves and shoot. And I would just sort of document it. So it's, it's always, you know, since those days as a 12-year-old in Central Park, I, I've just been documenting and setting up situations where I can document those things around me. Yeah, because you've said that for you, your photographs are, you want your photographs to be more about how they feel rather than how they, how they look. That's right. So this, this process of basically creating a situation for someone, for someone's own naturalness yeah. to sort of be revealed, that, that's a difficult thing. Do you think that part of the way that you work came from the fact that you weren't more formally trained and that you were coming from more intuitive space? You know, I, I think that it's a personality, uh, you know, sort of configuration uh, more than any sort of lack or inclusion of formal training. I think I just don't feel it's my place to judge. I think that if as long as you're not hurting each other, you, you know, you do your own thing. And, and so I'm not judgmental. And I think that on a very basic level, I think the subjects, the people who I work with can sense this. It's not an in, intelligible or intellectualized approach. It just, you know, it's all good. And, and I think people sense, I mean, I know they do because I've gotten feedback over the long time I've been shooting that, wow, that was amazing. Like I, that was just me. I mean, I could just be me. And I, I mean, I shot two days ago, uh, with a young model and you know, that was the response like, wow, like I was allowed to be me. And I think it's a really important element to, uh, you know, again, any time someone picks up a camera, whether it be, you know, an iPhone or a, you know, an eight by 10 Deerdorf, uh, and it puts a smile on your face, it's good. I, I don't judge that either. But what happens is that you've, you've, you find yourself in a situation where, from my, from my point of view, I don't want to impose me on the subject. I want, I've always been curious about, and I want the subject to be themselves. That's my connection to the people. So I often say, like, uh, uh, okay, my clients out there, please, like, you know, cover your ears right now. I don't care about clothing. I don't care about cosmetics. I care about people. Now, that translates effectively and successfully in my work. And, and you know, again, but it's always about that connection. And so I'm more interested about in you than what I can make you into. Uh, well, that seems completely antithetical to someone who works in the fashion industry, yeah. where the fixation is on the clothes, on the makeup, how, you know, the illusion. And what you're talking about is like, you don't really, that's the sort of secondary to you. But completely. the fact that you still are able to create images that are successful, not only in your eyes, but in, in the eyes of the client, seems like an unlikelihood, but you demonstrated that you've been able to do yeah. that. It's always yeah. been, my gosh, these are beautiful. You know, thank you so much. It's like everybody's so natural. Well, yes, they are. Because <laughs> I'm not, I don't say it, but I'm not imposing myself on them. I, you know, when while working in in Italy, you know, I would like make a dinner and, you know, put, you know, you know, six, you know, 12 people in the wardrobe, the designer and and uh, do hair and makeup. And you sit them down at a dinner and, you know, start, you know, serving wine. And and after a while, they forget you're there. 
and I'm able to photograph them, uh, them unobtrusively. And then, you know, the, the images go back to the magazine. It's, oh, Marco, it's, it's so natural. So, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, so but, do you give sort of minimal direction? You, what sort of information you provide the people who are going to be in front of the camera? Near zero. Near zero. You know, again, once starts once people start thinking about where the key light is and, you know, with, oh, but shuffle over here and this. But it's not really about that. It's, you know... It's, you know, it's a difficult thing. It's like, how much technique do you need? You go into a situation, you know you have uh, the ability to expose, you know, whatever medium, whether it be, you know, digital or film, and the type of film, of course, and, and you, are, you have certain, you know, prof, you know uh, technical standards uh, to which you need to adhere, you know, to a certain degree, obviously. So it just, you know, be an environment that makes sense and just sort of, it evolves. I don't want people to be thinking about me. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to be thinking about, you know, I mean, obviously on the film side, the motion side, there are more specific parameters, but I, I also employ this philosophy there too. And again, my work has always been viewed as like, it's so like loose and natural and uh, because it is. So that's, you know, my I had a very large client, global client, recently come to me, and I did a, a, a series. I have a, a, a series, an art series called the Art of Backstage. I don't shoot backstage at fashion, but I wanted to give my take on that environment. So I, I did shot that for a couple of years, and I still do it occasionally with the right designers and stuff. And it's just sort of my documenting backstage and this concern uh who uh they are a, a huge global brand came up to me and said oh you know mark we love your work and you know it's just fantastic and we'd like for you to you know work with us and and we were just wondering if you know you could you know do a few more you know in focus and oh, oh excuse me i said no that's just <laughs> what you if you like my work what you've seen is what what i do and and so no i i, I can't really do that and Oh, excuse me. So you're saying that you can't shoot a few more in focus? I said, no, no, I'm not saying that at all. I can shoot them all in focus. I said, that's not my approach because it's not as natural as what you've maybe responded to. And we're now having this conversation. Well, you know, we have 8,000, you know, stores worldwide. I said, no, no, I know, I know who you are. <laughs> yeah, of course. And again, they were like, so you're saying so you, you can't or you won't do that? I said, yeah, no, exactly. I I just have my way of doing it, and and but you know, thank you so much. I'm flattered, and it's it's wonderful. So they, they were a bit shocked, but you that's, know. that's that's a great story because I think what's interesting about every photographer is that they sort of develop a a style. Hopefully, it comes from something that's very personal, very innate. They become known for that, and then they start getting hired for that. And then people want to want some. They like the style, but they want you to do something else. And some photographers are very accommodating, and it may not necessarily be the very thing that sort of drew the client to them in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. And then that's so important, uh, you know, to understand that is that if you acquiesce, it, like in today's market, for instance, that you know this, I call it the the huge uh, digital swimming pool. Everyone's out there. It's sunny. The, the pool is warm. There's a bunch of, you know, beautiful people and they're splashing and laughing and, you know, just having a wonderful time. But it's this huge community. And what I say is not being an elitist, but I just prefer to be in my pool rather than the, the, the pool at large. One really must in this, you know, sort of derivative world 
uh, the constant question uh, is to how do you separate? How do you, you know, make your mark on this world in photography? And I said, you know, every single person on earth has unique DNA. Every single person you ever see and will ever see is unique, scientifically. Further complicated by upbringing. So it's, you know, nature and nurture, where you've got, you know, circumstances that, you know, I tell the story about in Central Park getting, you know, my camera equipment stolen with a gun to my head. It's like, I mean, hopefully that's a story unique to me. So these, all these things in life contribute to making you who you are. And it's just a function of being brave enough to present who you are and, you know, I, you know, the, this book, recent work that uh, is is out now and uh, doing well. I had a one of my biggest clients in Tokyo uh, email Sage, my producer, uh, asking why squid. That was the entire email. There happens to be a photograph of squid uh, in a tank that I photographed in Tokyo, and I said for Sage to please get back to this gentleman and and said thank you so much for the title for my next book. Not in fact, but I just thought, what a wonderful thing, why squid? Because I responded to it, and I do, and I know why. You know, for me, in a very brief discussion, uh, you know, fish, sakana, uh, in Japan features very prominent in their survival. It's an island. We don't necessarily feel the same way because we have so much arable land in this country, you know, to raise cattle, <laughs> you know, have a different sensibility about what to eat. And, and so for me, I really respond to fish. And, and, and there are, I think, several shots uh, in this book, recent work, of fish. And it's just, this book is a visceral, emotional response to the world around me. It's not based on my ability to take a good picture, which, you know, without ego, I can do that every day. I've, I've made my living at this my entire life in both motion and still images. And that's the difference is like, oh, that's beautiful light. I'll take a picture of that building or that, you know, that's a beautiful person. I'll take a picture of a beautiful person. These images are coming from, you know, inside. And if we, and I talk about this all the time, if we are able to bravely tap into who we are as an individual, you're automatically separated. No one can do you. No one can photograph you. And yeah, because when I, I look at, at your work, especially the work in the book compared to the stuff I see on the, on the website, there's no differentiation there. It's all sort of consistent because one of the things that comes up, especially for a lot of young photographers, is that they have their body of work that they put out there to market themselves as a, as a photographer and then ask them about their personal work. And oftentimes that stuff is very different. But it seems like with you, it's it's all the same same thing. And you've just mentioned how you just remain true to that that whole idea. Like, this is the way that I shoot. This is the way that works for me. But was that a lesson that was hard learned? Did you have situations early on where you, where you did compromise and you realized, uh oh, I can't do this? Short answer: Yes. It, it's been both difficult and a, and, a, and a long process, and there were definitely times where you know there was a separation, you know, in a very very personal level. But I was asked a number of again, with, if you know me better, you would know that I don't. It's not about ego, but I speak very frankly, and I've been asked many times to have exhibitions and publish a book or books, you know, in the past, and I just sort of 
you know, responded with, you know, thank you so much. I'm, you know, I'm flattered, but like I, you know, I just do my work and, you know, that's, I'm really happy doing that. And there are things, uh, we all, we feel uh, as humans that we have a commonality and because we it feels safer that way. And in reality, we don't, we don't see the same way. We don't feel the same uh, way. We don't see color the same way. We don't see graphics the same way. But we want to feel, you know, in, you know, common with other people. So we're, and in that, there's a, you know, there's some insulation because we don't want to feel pain. We don't want to feel challenge, maybe sporting, you know, challenge. But we want to, you know, just sort of go through life without the difficulty. So when asked to by yourself or by someone else to shoot, photograph, or film, or paint, or sculpt, or make music as an individual, You've got to tap into how you are different, and then you have to shed the insulation, and that's where the bravery, you know, part comes in. It's uh, it's a real challenge. So I had uh, picked up a camera one night, late in the middle of the night. Uh, I don't sleep well uh, in New York in my studio in New York a few years back. Just it was a beautiful. Uh, image of someone sleeping there with, with you know sort of uh, the blankets sort of draped over the body and the, just ambient light coming in the window south light but you know no direct light no street lamps or anything like that it was just the sky light at night and i picked up the camera pushed the button and it was flashing 60 and i didn't know what that was at first because in the middle of the night so i figured oh, i can put this down or i can just hold my breath which i did and that became a series called 60 Seconds, which has done really well uh, around the world. Um, and it, at that point, when I saw that image on the back of the Leica camera, um, it freaked me out. I was like, wow, okay, that's art. To me, I'm not an expert at the art world, but to me, it felt like art. So I started showing it around, and that was really the beginning of the foray into my art you know, pursuits and I'm almost exclusively pursuing the art now. Very select clients, both on the still or the motion side, as it has just, you know, tapped into something so very important to me, which is me, you know. And yes, people always say, wow, you know, your style, it's immediately recognizable. And, you know, and, and like you just mentioned, the idea that the art you know, resonates with the maybe more traditional non-art work or, uh, you know, but it, it really is, it's, I had to learn to accept that, but I, I, I do accept it, uh, that it's, you know, the threat is there. And um, I think it really always has uh, been. So I, I thank you for that. And, I read the other day that there are over 700,000 podcasts currently listed in the Apple Podcast Directory, and they're estimating it will be over 1 million before the end of the year. That's insane. When I started, there were probably only a couple of thousand, and of those, maybe a dozen were dedicated to photography. Today, the challenge is not just locating a good show, but having the time to listen to it which makes me all the more appreciative to the thousands of people who subscribe and listen to The Candid Frame every week. Because if you didn't enjoy and believe in the show, I certainly wouldn't have continued doing it for 13 and a half years. 
And it's your commitment to the show as a listener and a financial supporter that continues to make a difference. So thanks to all of you who have contributed to the show over these many months and years. And if you've yet to support the show, I hope you'll do it today by becoming a Patreon supporter. Commit to a monthly contribution of $5 or more a month, and you'll be helping us to make this show one of the ones you love to listen to. So go to patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and become a Patreon supporter today. Thanks. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. You may not have an answer for it, but uh, you know, what the hell? You just said that you looked at that work and you said, that's art, right? And the question of what is art is a very difficult one. But when you're looking at your own work, what did you see in those series of images that was so unlike what you had done before? Great question. No one has ever asked that. And I'm going to try to answer it. I think it's more of a visceral thing. It, I, I responded to it just, you know, the middle of the night, you know, I was half asleep. And, and I think that that resonance uh, just sort of took me over. And, um, and so I think that's, you know, sort of forms the basis of my art, like, and especially in this work, uh, the uh, recent work where I'm not, responding visually i'm just like when i feel something being very attuned to something and not intellectualizing it you're going back to that question you know why squid it just I, I see something i take the picture i put it in a file and i don't look at it until it's important to do so so i think it's something that you just respond to just really viscerally you know i i, I saw i'm sure you know the brilliant richard leroy i saw his show in New York a few weeks back and we got to talking about this stuff and you know he went into the very hallowed ground of you know Carmel and Yosemite and started you know to you know these large amazing images and you know he really put his emotion into it and we talked you know sort of you know very technical things about the use of lenses and you know where you know human emotion is in our own vision and also you know photographically cinematically you know we uh, on that very basic level if we are not afraid to insulate ourselves always then then you are subject to things you know, it could be little Susie's, you know, doll where her brother, you know, uh, the, the doll having a red dress and her brother, you know, threw it out the window one day because he was, you know, challenging his sister. That red may represent something to her that is, you know, really long lasting. Whenever that person might see red, you know, she might respond viscerally to that time that she can't even recollect because she's sort of pushed it aside or it's no longer relevant or whatever. So I think it's just a, a it was a visceral response. I showed it to my uh, dear friend and, and business partner at that time, the great photographer, Mark Bugzester. He saw it. I showed it on the back of the camera and he turned away. He said, I, 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 don't, I don't want to see that's crazy. I don't even want to see that. And he walked away. And so I started showing around to, as I call the, the the people who are smart in that business, and 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 so they, you know, uh, a very flattering way have responded favorably to it to that, and it sort of that sort of started this whole art thing. But I suspect that it is all just me, but with a couple more layers shed on the art side. <laughs> what you're saying really resonates with me. My, my cousin is a famed contemporary abstract painter, yeah, and I've had the opportunity to see him work. 
And as he applies the paint to the canvas that he works on, it is a completely emotional, um, intuitive, uh, spontaneous thing that he's doing. And he does, he, he's a, he started as a graffiti artist on the streets and eventually evolved into doing what he does, does now. And it's really fascinating to see someone working in that way where it's so in line with who they are in that particular moment. And in my own photographic practice now, for me, it's the, the image has not as been as important as it was in the past. What's more important to me is the space that I'm in when I was creating it and exactly. trying to get back into that that space. But the challenge is photography is a largely technical practice where the shutter speed, the lens choice, the exposure, all of those things have to be sort of factored in. You teach a lot, and I'm sure that you see a lot of students who have difficulty moving past the technical side to get into that emotional, intimate process. So how do you help people to make to make the leap, to be able to make images that are very personal, very emotional, emotional that have that, that resonance that you're speaking of? You know, it, I, I often speak about that because that's the question. And, and I think it's really the, the crux of, uh, you know, the pursuit of photography and art. And uh, again, without using the language I would normally use, you know, it's like F focus. Uh, and, <laughs> I, you know, it, I say as we're sitting there focusing back and forth and back and forth, but, you know, life is gone, man. Like it, it's gone by you. And I say, shoot, push the button. It doesn't matter whether you're prepared, you have the exposure, the focus set, push the button because one, and this may shock people, but the emotional content in a photograph, in a motion picture, in human vision is contained in the out of focus areas of that setting. And this is science. This is not me. This is Margaret Livingston, Dr. Margaret Livingston at Harvard Medical School. This is... um, Steven Pinker, uh, who is uh, one of the heads of the psychology department at Harvard. And these folks have spent their entire life studying human vision. And I have uh, I ran across Margaret Livingston's book. I will not be able to remember the title of it because I never can. But uh, just look up Marvin, Dr. Uh, Margaret Livingston and you'll find the book. And it's about human vision. It's unbelievable as it relates to art. And, the, you know, I, I had a talk with, I'm, I know I'm digressing and you know, going tangentially here, but I had a, a, a show in New York that was co-curated by Alice Gabrenner, and Alice Gabrenner is one of the great you know, photographic curators alive, and we had a discussion on the phone about photography and you know, about my type of work with you know, the lack of focus and just sort of the energy of the images, and, and she said to me, you know, what do you think about like all this you know, sharpness and megapixels and this and that? And I said, well, that's a good question, Alice. I said, let me ask you, do you need to render the eyelashes in focus in the fallen soldier. And she was silent. I said, Alice? She goes, no, I'm here. I'm here. She goes, I get it. And I started talking, saying, you know, I mean, I, you know, that's, you know, you know what's happening with that. She goes, Mark, you don't have to go any further. I, you know, I understand. 
and I understand marketing because I've been in advertising as a photographer and as a director for my entire life. I understand the need for marketing new product and the need for new product to, you know, revenue and bottom line and business and stuff. The digital world, it, 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 respectfully to those who are pursuing it, is, uh, you know, sort of gone awry. And there's a huge pushback, as you know, in the form of, you know, film photography, uh, alternative processes, you know, wet plate collodion images, because people are, are maybe not intellectually, but they're responding to images that are not this hyper digitized, you know, sharp out to the corners, like, you know, all these, you know, computer aided designs. And just consider it, I say, um, and don't take my word for it. I, I, I tell you what I know, but, you know, pursue it yourself, everyone out there that uh, just shoot. And so in response to what you're, you're saying, you know, about the sort of need for technique, I think it's for me and what I believe in is far less important than shedding the insulation of who you are and shoot the picture, you know, and I'm finding some young people uh, across the globe. I watch very carefully what's going on everywhere just because I'm fanatically interested in it. I'm still a huge consumer and admirer of images. There's some young people out there who are really doing this thing at the beginning with this sort of rejection of, you know, sort of, you know, the, the big machine of, you know, photography and in particular, a lot of women photographers, you know, doing fantastic things and uh, hopefully getting more and more, you know, sort of exposure and, and respect in a, you know, sort of historically male dominated field. So we need to be mindful of this, that, you know, if you don't push the button, you got nothing. Yeah, I think it's the constraints of the box that is photography is, is important to understand the process, to understand how all these choices that you have with this magic box can result in producing consistent photographs. But you can get trapped in that box, and moving past it is, I think, the challenge of anyone who wants to create art, whatever they consider that that, that means. But getting back to this idea of getting into sort of a, a moment when you're making the photographs, when you're taking a look at the photographs later, so you've had a shoot with you know, whatever, whoever you're, you're photographing, how do you demark what you felt like when you were making the picture and letting the picture sort of speak that emotion? You, you, know, what, you know what I mean? Because sometimes you can be so caught up in what it felt like to take the picture that you impress that on the photograph but it isn't there in the photograph. So how do you sort of recognize it when you're taking a look at, you know, your contact sheet or, you know, the images on Lightroom or Bridge, whatever, to identify the image that does elicit that image that you're pursuing and isn't reliant on what you felt like when you're making the picture? Yes. Great question again. This is a process that is the exact opposite of what I'd normally do. I'm going to rewind a little bit. Okay. Normally, I, I shoot, and at uh, the end of the day, uh, Sage, my producer, uh, we go through the images, we, we, we choose our selects, and by as I say, by dinner time, those images are out. That's just the modern world. The next day, they aren't necessarily valid anymore. Um, it's a you know a, a different requirement today than it used to be, and so they're immediate. And I see them, select them, send them. With recent work, I have been shooting, and I'll say, "Oh, that's recent work," and then Sage will know to put it into a file that is just 
you know, named recent work. I do not see them again until in preparation of the book at all. And right there is a huge departure because as soon as images were available historically and more, you know, quickly recently, I will see them. I do not in my art now. What that does is I, I, I really don't want to intellectualize because that I'm very capable of. Uh, that's what I've done all my life is, you know, it, it, you know, in a visual but also intellectual way, you know, pursued, you know, photography and technique and, and telling a story and, and, and fulfilling the needs of a client. So this is, it, it, it starts with a feeling. I don't want to intellectualize it. But you're asking me like, okay, well, how do you know? Yes, I, I can intellectualize all of them later, like I said about the fish. And I know why I argued a case in an international law class on behalf of the Japanese whaling efforts and won that case handily when I was at SC. And that and, and partially precipitated my deciding not to be an attorney or pursue law, but to go into the visual arts because I didn't necessarily believe in it entirely. I mean, I believed in it in many ways, but not necessarily entirely. I was conflicted. So I know that, that the Sakana images that I take in Tokyo now relate to that time. So there's an intellectual foundation or you know, sort of analysis that I'm capable of. But when I'm shooting, I want to just feel it. I stop, I shoot. Sage is always, you know, having to, I'd be like, hold on, hold on. And, like, and she's like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm, I'm taking a picture of these fish. Like, oh, okay. So the idea is to be completely not intellectually engaged and then pursue when going through the images. And I, I did this when I first saw that file after maybe a year of photographing this project and was engaged the same way again as when I was taking the image, when I was seeing it now on the computer. And like where my you know heart rate goes up, my respiratory rate increases, and I'm feeling the same things. And I, so I go completely on that. So when I'm taking it, Emotional. It's hard to do because yeah. we are really walking through life not wanting to engage a lot. It, it sounds negative, and it's not necessarily negative. It's you know just the survival and you know, how we you know sort of deal in the big city, if you will. But so you're you're more uh, you know sort of engaged, and so and therefore more vulnerable when shooting from your heart, if you will. And so I just uh, apply the same things, which is not to intellectualize, just look at it, get the feeling. And uh, so that was a really interesting process for me is to sort of, you know, commingle those, those you know, two very similar, you know, feelings and, and, and choose by that. And of course, the uh, book was, you know, published. Yeah, let's talk about the same thing we're talking about now in relationship to, to the book. Right. Um, because... We're talking. You were just talking about sort of individual images, but images can take on an, a whole different life when they're laid out, especially in opposition to each other on facing pages, or when you have multiple images on on a page. That book is really interesting because you have nudes from the sixty seconds project. You mentioned some of the big pictures that you took at the fish market in, in, in Japan, and it's 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 a book that brings together images that I think most people would never think putting together. And you're talking about sort of an intuitive process in terms of making the photographs. So how does that translate when you are laying out a, a book and you're not only choosing the better photographs to choose, but the photographs that are meant to play off of each other? 
Thank you for using the word intuitive. Uh, most people who are familiar with my process uh, tend to use the word possessed. Um, and I, I, I sort of uh, agree with that, you know, if I can get a perspective on myself. But what happened was we just, I started loading the images in my computer when I had not seen these images from the time when I shot them, as I mentioned. It just became a bit of possession, sort of insanity. Like it just, I started just putting things together and without. Intellect again, you know, it was just responding to it, putting them up, and the way they combined. And I, uh, along with Sage, my producer, and Alex Ramos, the the publisher of the book, uh, who are very instrumental in the layout and design of it, um, I imposed myself a little bit on it by suggestion, but not, you know, by demand about certain things I liked, you know, together. It really was an evolution. It just sort of like a, a a crazy thing in a very you know good and productive way I, I, I'm not sure you know but the book was uh, put into uh, the library at MoMA New York uh, at the Getty Center the Getty Museum rather uh, here in LA and uh, soon to be in the top museum in Tokyo and we got a great response from the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery and each of these correspondences talked about for scholars for research and it's funny because I, I joke about it because I, I joke a lot. I joke about it and say, you know, it's funny because they're talking about scholars and research and it's like, it's a picture book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so on the one hand, I, I see it that way. It's, you know, images. The best way for me to describe it is every time I'm in the presence of a Rothko, you talked about your abstract expressionist experiences, and uh, every time I'm in the presence of a Rothko, Rothko, even before I've seen it, I can't breathe. I literally, like, if there's one around the corner in an exhibition at a museum that I've not been to before, you know, like... I, it's a wonderful I, experience when you have that with a piece of art. It's amazing. And so it's that type of thing. It's sort of like, if you can, you know... I used to race bicycles and I was strapped to a heart rate monitor for five or six years. And, you know, if, if you can monitor yourself like during the day and sort of point out and like what you're looking at or what you're confronted with, you'd have a better insight into, you know, sort of like the emotional status. Yeah. Uh, I don't recommend it, but, <laughs> but it's, it's a tricky thing that what you're talking about, because it requires you to trust yourself to a really high degree because when other people try to read into it and they go, why did you put these pictures together? Because to them, it, intellectually, it doesn't yeah. make sense. And intellectually, you really can't justify it because as soon as you start breaking it down into, well, there's a color relationship or it's shape and line, you take whatever emotion, emotional resonance that those pairings had and you immediately strip it out. Yeah. Um, so how do you resist the temptation to explain in terms that they understand why those images are, are relating to each other on the page. Largely, again, you know, not from ego, but I, you know, sort of bold in my communication. And I just don't care. <laughs> it's really what it comes down to. Yeah. You know, I guess I've been around long enough and, and had the successes that I've had and continue to have. And so there's a certain reliance on that. And it started with a certain brashness and, you know, early success, like we spoke about with the Henry Fonda thing. Um, it's just been, you know, not, I've always been known as a, a nice photographer and a nice director, not like some, you know, who 
take the power of the, those positions, you, you know, uh, to the extreme. Uh, you know, I just don't, I don't have any time for disrespect or, uh, you know, this type of stuff. And, you know, sort of the posturing, just like do my work, do it well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's the type of thing where I, I don't care. And I would use different parlance, but I'm going to keep it clean. But I, it just, you know, it's, it, it, I do what I do. Uh, you know, people like it. and It's it, a good yeah. place to be. It really it is. It really is. It, it provides you so much freedom. I'm only coming into it now. My, you know, my whole life, both creatively and personally, I've always been concerned with other people's opinions. And a friend of mine says, you know, other people's opinions are none of your business. And it, was like, it. and it was completely antithetical to the way I'd thought most of my life. And it's like increasingly I realized, oh, yeah, it's none of my business. So why should I care? Yeah. You know, I just do what I need to do for me. And as long as I'm not hurting anybody Perfect. and I'm being respectful, then I can just sort of keep doing it. Yes. Yeah. In the video, I during the design of the book, you had prints on the page. And you talked earlier about seeing the images on the computer. For me, there is something much different when you are physically moving prints on a floor or a table. And you're just... Because for me, when I do that process myself, I want the surprises that happen from manipulating the prints with my hands as opposed to what can happen on the computer. Completely. So that's something that happened for you in, in the development of the book? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, with the, uh, Alex Ramos, the uh, publisher of the book, had made a... Uh, he's up at uh, the Leica Gallery in San Francisco, and he uh, printed up, you know, printed out a bunch of, you know, sort of low-res images, you know, what would be the considered the, the file that we titled, you know, recent work, and just, you know, put them on the floor. He came down to L.A., and we put them on the floor and started, you know, yes, no, rearranging them. So it was really a both, uh, you know, the initial like sort of increased heart rate uh, that I saw on the computer the night before because that was the first time I'd seen them in preparation of the meeting the next day. Th that that emotional response uh, became a more pr practical one uh, as I knew a little bit about what I was responding to, and then it became this this very tactile, visceral response to in a grander scheme or a broader scheme, you know, uh, by moving actual prints around, you know, by five by seven inches, you know, prints. And, you know, it's new to me. I'm like, I've been doing this stuff for, you know, taking images and making film and, and this stuff is, uh, is, is new to me. It's very child. I mean, I'm childlike as it relates to those things anyway, but it, it, it really cool. It's sort of just like playing. Yeah. You know? So you're working on a follow-up to that book. Has that experience of the first book informed or changed your approach leading into this next, next one? Zero. Um, I just went through the, I had a meeting up in San Francisco a few days ago about recent work two or whatever we end up calling it, the second installment of it. It's going to be three one this year and then uh, the second one this year and then the third one in 2020 and then we're going to do a slip cover where you can put all, all three of them in oh nice and then that'll complete that that exercise if you will or <laughs> that uh, series but so I, I had gone through in preparation of the meeting up in San Francisco a couple of days ago I had gone through the images thus far in what's considered to be recent work too and same thing same feeling, like sort of like I have to steady myself and, you know, heart rate goes up and respiratory rate goes up. And so it's it's it, the same and the, yeah, the same response and uh, it being well received already. And yeah. I'm excited about uh, Seems like you're in a great, real great place in terms of not just your career, but just in terms of your creative process. I, I talk to a lot of people, many of whom have been doing it for decades. Yeah. It's not often that I hear people who are still enthusiastic, right? They're big, still in it. Big time. 
But yeah, it seems like your passion has been sustained just just by the fact that you stayed true to yourself. It's true, yeah. You know, again, you know, name dropping or whatever, but I had a meeting yesterday at uh, Arcana Books here in L.A. Uh, if you don't know of it, you should look it up. It's uh, an amazing uh, bookstore on art and photography. And I was introduced to the owner there to just show the book. And we, you know, walked in and showed the book. And he looked through it. And he was just, you know, very impressed uh, using superlatives. And if there's sort of anybody on earth who knows more than this guy about uh, photography and bookmaking. And, you know, he's been doing it for 35 years or something. He's the owner of Arcana. And uh, so we're doing actually a, a book signing and a talk uh, in a few weeks uh, there. And, you know, for me, it's like, this is, you know, an unbelievable blessing to be able to be received this way. You know, again, I've always done a lot of work and, and been successful and continue. But this, when someone says uh, of that caliber, like, wow, this is a great book. It's beautiful. And we'd love to have it here. And, you know, yes, let's have a talk. And Sage, my producer said, well, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, I know you guys schedule maybe a year out or whatever, and we'll accommodate this. He said a year out. He says, we can do this in a few weeks. You're like, when is the exhibition? And what, you know, so yes, it, you know, it is remaining true and it comes with maturity for the most part. I, I attribute maturity to it. And also, you know, also I've always had belief in my own work. I've never doubted the work. I've never walked away from a job and thought, oh, you know, maybe I could have done better. It's like, I, I work harder than that. Uh, to, I, I, I always say I like to sleep at night. So I, I, you know, I've never given anything less than what my capacity was. And so it, 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 it sort of all comes together. And I'm not saying that everybody can do this and everyone have the same path because I don't believe that. But I do believe that the pursuit of oneself uh, is the best route. Yeah. Yeah. And what I like, most about the book is that it really challenges my assumption of what a book should be in terms of the image choices and the relationships on the page. It, it, it refuses to be easily defined by just simply browsing through it, which I think happens with a lot of sort of collections of, of photographs. You're, you're looking at it as, a, as an amalgam of someone's career or a certain particular body of work. And I like the fact that I can have a different experience with the book each time I examine it. That, and especially since I'm, I'm not looking at the individual photographs as the experience, right? That one photograph on that blank page, I mean, it's surrounded by white. There, I'm really sort of required to think about the relationships, not just in terms of what the photographer intended, but what I'm experiencing as a result of looking at that juxtaposition and trying to get past why he put those two together and going, well, given that he did put them, those two together, what do I get from it? And I think it's really sort of interesting for me to think about that when I sit down to edit my own photographs, to think beyond the aesthetics of what allows them to have sort of a synergy in relationship to each exactly. other and getting into that sort of emotional that emotional thing. So I really thank you for, for sharing that with us. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. It's uh you, that's the, the, the most uh, important accolade that I can receive is that you are engaged a, as an individual. I don't want to tell you what to think. Yeah. There are no words in the book. There's no titles in the beginning. I always fight this about in the motion picture side about, I don't want any opening credits. Oh, no, you have to have opening credits. It's like, no, I, I, like, I've got like a few minutes to engage that audience. It's not about type on the screen. 
let's get to what's going on here. Let's establish what the conflict is. Yeah. You know, um, so in that way, you just described to me what is so important to me, which is to be able to allow you to have your own experience. What's better than that? Yeah, that's great. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Uh, both. Long admired and recently discovered because I, I watched very carefully. Paolo Reversi, uh, the great uh, Italian uh, who's been living in uh, Paris forever, uh, He's just, I, I, I saw, I was at, um, I spent a lot of time in Milan and uh, still, and I was at an opening for a book uh, that he was releasing uh, about his work uh, with Dior, the, the French designer. And yep, that's, that's my answer. Paolo Reversi, R-O-V-E-R-S-I, genius in so many ways. Just, okay. just do that. And you'll sort of understand, we're sort of simpatico also, like it's not, yeah, the, the people at Arcana said, "Oh, I can see Roversi and Sarah Moon," and I said, "Yeah, well, you know, it's sort of the, the uh, collective consciousness. It's like uh, you know, it's like not defending myself, but I show you pictures from that same era that they've been shooting from, and you know, sort of, you know, start to get loose. You know, getting out of that sort of technical era it was a pushback, a response to. But yes, Paolo Roversi. Well, thanks for that recommendation, and thanks for coming up my way. Ah, my pleasure. Thanks to Mark for sharing his time and story with us. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting depaulapictures.com. And there you can order a copy of his latest book, Recent Work. And if you're in the Bay Area on Thursday, May 16th, you can attend an exhibition of his work at the San Francisco Leica store, as well as get a signed copy of his book. To be the voice that introduces the episode at the top of the show like Mike Leonard did this week, just send us an audio file recorded on your phone, tablet, or computer saying something like, this is Matteo Luna from Luca, Italy, and this is The Candid Frame. Say it at least a couple of times so we have a take to choose from. And please include three to four seconds of silence before or after you speak to help us clean up the audio. Also make sure to include a link to your website, blog or Instagram feed when you send it to info at thecandidframe.com. I have a variety of workshops I'm leading in the coming months, including one in three weeks in Washington, D.C. at the Focus on the Story Photo Festival, a two-day workshop in June at the Los Angeles Center of Photography, and a week-long cultural experience in Tokyo, Japan. I'm also finalizing details for a trip to Vancouver, Canada that I'll be announcing soon with a former guest of the show. You'll find details on all of these on our website when you click on the link for workshops and classes. And if you want to get a sense of my teaching style and approach to photography, you should check out my YouTube channel where I offer critiques and evaluations of photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. You can check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the links in the show notes and the website. I've also been making the rounds promoting my latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, and while the title may not be the sexiest, I'm pleased to hear that people who have picked up a copy are finding that it provides them new insight into how to see and make photographs. Whether you're new to photography or have been wielding a camera for years, I think you'll find some invaluable insights that will really transform your photography. 
You can order the book today. And when you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll find three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you've been hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you write a review on your blog, let me know and send me a link because I would really like to thank you on air. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Carl Frizzell, Tony Haskins, and Joanna Neapolitano for their recent contributions. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download The Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is, in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. And we also have an Alexa app, so if you have one of those smart devices, download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.